This is John 19, 16 through 42. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple who he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Mother, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the others who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once, out, and at once there came out blood and water. And who saw it bore witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who was earlier, had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dustin.
I wonder if any of you have seen the film by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ. I ask that because we've come now in John's gospel to Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. Maybe a film like The Passion of the Christ comes to your mind. Now, I haven't seen the film, so I can't recommend it, but I recently came across a comment that I want to share with you this morning. A pastor writes this, As much as I was thankful for many aspects of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, I couldn't help but think that without a theological interpretation of Jesus' passion, most people watching the movie would end up simply feeling sorry for a good man who suffered so violently. The pastor says, I couldn't help but think that without a theological interpretation, most people would end up simply feeling sorry. It is true that Christ suffered violently. It is true that he suffered a truly awful death. But John's aim here is not, to, is not for us to feel sorry for some tragic hero. His aim is not to elicit our pity, but to elicit our worship. Let me remind you of why John wrote this gospel. Why did he write this book? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote these verses that we come to this morning. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Believe in him and have life in his name. John aims for us to see the glory of the Son as he's exalted on a tree. John aims for us to behold the crucified Christ and to believe. Now, as we'll see as we go through this passage, there are five main paragraphs, five main sections in this portion of Scripture. John gives us five small scenes or vignettes on Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. Let me show you how each one bears witness to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me show you that this morning. So, as we begin, look with me again at verse, verse 16. This is the start of the first scene, verses 16 through 22. And I'll read these again for us this morning, starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I was surprised when I began studying this passage. Why? Why was I surprised? Because John seems to state the crucifixion so matter-of-factly. 
There they crucified him. There they crucified him. We all know that crucifixion was unspeakably brutal. But John doesn't mention the pain, the shame, the anguish, the horror. All he says is, there they crucified him. In fact, it's almost as though John is more interested in the inscription than in the crucifixion at this moment. He's more interested in the inscription. It's as though he's impatient to get to what Pilate wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, it was written in three languages. Aramaic was the language of Judea. Latin was the official language of the army. Greek was the common language of the entire Roman Empire. In other words, anyone could read this inscription, and everyone did, because Jesus was crucified near the city. Well, he doesn't budge. What I've written, I have written, and it makes makes us wonder, was Pilate a believer? Was he a disciple of Jesus? No. He was getting back at the Jews. He was taking revenge on those who earlier had said to him, if you release this man, you're not a friend of the Jews. He's getting back at them. No, he's not a believer in Jesus. But there is some irony here that John wants us to see. The irony is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's who he is. He's the long-awaited king, now exalted on a cross. To him, to this crucified king, belongs dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, before we move on, do not think for a second that this king makes no claim on your life and on mine. He was the king of all those who spoke Aramaic and Latin and Greek, and he is the king. He is the king of all those who currently speak English and Mandarin and Hindi and every other language of this world. He is the king. And this morning, you have read the inscription. You have read it. You have heard it. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And now that you have heard it, now that you have seen it, How will you respond? How will you respond to the king? Will you gladly give your all, your everything, your dreams, your gifts, your wealth, your very life, body and soul, to this king? Will you gladly and joyfully surrender your all to him? Pilate unwittingly bears witness to the truth. Jesus is the king. But Pilate is not the only unwitting witness here to the glory of Christ. In scene number two, John turns our attention to the soldiers who crucified Jesus. There they are, dividing up his garments, casting lots for his tunic. Why would John be so interested in this seemingly mundane, unimportant detail. Why is he concerned? There's Jesus crucified on a cross, and John's concerned about the soldiers casting lots? Think about it. Well, John gives us the answer. He tells us why this is so important. In verse 24, he writes, This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, 
and for my clothing they cast lots. This is from Psalm 22. You may remember that Jesus on the cross had cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how Psalm 22 begins. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, a lament in which a righteous man suffers unjustly. The innocent man suffers unjustly and yet trusts in God to deliver him. So what's John telling us? What's John telling us as he focuses in on this fulfillment of Scripture? He's telling us that Jesus is the man. He is the righteous, innocent sufferer of Psalm 22. Even the casting of lots at the foot of the cross, even this activity is the fulfillment of Scripture. It was no mistake. It was no accident that Jesus was crucified, that his garments were split up, that his tunic was passed along to one of the soldiers? No. Unwittingly, even the soldiers bear witness to the truth. Jesus is the king. He is the son of God. And before this scene ends, look with me at the contrast that John points out. At the end of verse 30, uh, not 32, 24. At the end of verse 24, he shows us this contrast. I want want you to see it. So verse 24. So the soldiers did these things, but, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now let's go back in our study of John's gospel all the way back to chapter 2. Do you remember Mary and Jesus' interaction at the wedding at Cana? Way back in chapter 2, Mary had tried to leverage her special status as the mother of Jesus. When the wine had ran When the wine ran out, Mary said to him, to Jesus, they have no wine. But Jesus rebukes his mother. Gently, he rebukes her because she too must become his disciple. There's no special privilege when it comes to the kingdom of God. Mary too needs to come to him as her Messiah. And now she watches as her son dies crucified on a cross. There she is. She's watching this happen. But perhaps, perhaps she's beginning to look at Jesus as more than just her son. Perhaps she's beginning to see that Jesus is not just her son. No, he is her Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And we see Jesus tenderly, gently caring for her future well-being. That brings us to scene number three, and we finally come to the death of Christ. I want us to look at this once again. I'll start in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus knew that all was now finished. The Father's plan had been fulfilled and he would soon die. But Jesus was no unwilling or passive participant in this plan of his Father. No, he speaks out to fulfill the Scripture. He speaks out to fulfill the Scripture. I thirst. Here, Jesus probably is quoting from Psalm 69. Like Psalm 22, Psalm 69 is a lament. It's a lament of an innocent sufferer. And who is, once again, who is the, the innocent sufferer? It's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. I thirst. And having received the sour wine, Jesus spoke once more. He spoke those unforgettable words. It is finished. What was finished? What was finished? A plan. A purpose. A redemption. The Father had planned and purposed to redeem. To save sinners by sending his own son to die in their place. To exalt a crucified Christ so that all who believed in him would have life. And what does Jesus cry out on the cross? It is finished. It's not a cry of defeat. It's not a cry of giving up or giving in. No, it's the proclamation of the Son of God as he draws his last breath. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. I have done what my Father sent me to do. It's not a cry of defeat. It's the battle cry of victory. It is finished. What John wants us to see, friends, what he wants us to see is the unwavering, unflinching, unfaltering obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the scripture. Jesus finished the mission. Jesus gave up his spirit. No one takes my life from me, Jesus once said, but I lay it down of my own accord. So do you see? Do you see it? Jesus was obedient, perfectly obedient to the very point of death on a cross. What the Father planned, the Son accomplished. And because he obeyed, we're saved. So it's not just Pilate. It's not just the soldiers who unwittingly bear witness to the glory of Christ as he's crucified on a tree. No, Christ himself bears witness as he dies. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Believe in me and have life. And next we'll see that there's another witness. John, the beloved disciple himself, he also bears witness. As we come to scene number four, John reminds us of the setting. Where, where are we at this point? Verse 31 begins, Since it was the day of preparation. The day of preparation. 
as Pastor Troy explained last week, the setting for these events is the Passover. If you reread this section, you'll see repeated references to the Passover. The day of preparation is here. It's the Passover. It's the Passover. John doesn't want us to miss it. He repeatedly reminds us it's Passover weekend. Now, I thought this helped me to understand this, and maybe it will be helpful for you. Many of you are big fans of college football or the NFL. You are familiar with the rules, the rivalries, the traditions. But imagine trying to make sense of something like the coin toss without the setting. Imagine trying to make sense of the coin toss without the sidelines and the teams, without the stadium, without the fans, without all of that stuff that makes a football game a football game. You'd watch the coin toss with a referee and a couple players. You'd watch that and say, what in the world is going on? I do not get it. Okay, now think with me about the death of Christ. You will wonder what's going on. You will wonder about what's going on if you don't understand the wider setting. In this case, the setting is not sidelines and stadiums, but the setting is lambs and blood, the Passover. So it's the Passover. It's when God's people celebrated redemption. Earlier in the service, we read from Exodus 12, when God instituted this feast, this Passover. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? When your children say to you, Daddy, Mommy, why are we doing this? What are we, what is this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. This was redemption by substitution, by atonement, by the blood of a lamb. The lamb needed to be blameless without blemish, a male, a year old. And most importantly, or one of the important details is this, not one of its bones was to be broken. So, it's Good Friday. It's the day of preparation. And with that in mind, with that in mind, listen again to these verses, starting in verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So Jesus was dead. A soldier came and pierced his side and out came blood and water. Now there are medical professions among our church family here and they could give us a a medical explanation of what happens here. There's a physical bodily reason for why this happened. John's point is this. Jesus died. He really did. Jesus 
is dead. Out came water and out came blood. But John is probably hinting at more. There may be, there probably is, symbolism here in the blood and in the water. John doesn't elaborate here at this point, but what do we know from John's writings elsewhere? Blood symbolizes Christ's death, of course. Blood is the basis for forgiveness and eternal life. His blood is the basis. John writes in 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In John 6, Jesus says, whoever drinks my blood has eternal life. So with all that in mind, what came out of Jesus' side? Blood. Blood came out. And not just that, but water. In John's writings, water symbolizes life. It symbolizes cleansing. It symbolizes the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is John suggesting? What is he hinting at? He's suggesting that all of these blessings flow down because Christ was lifted up. Come to the crucified Christ for forgiveness. Come to the crucified Christ for eternal life. Come to the crucified Christ for cleansing. Come to the crucified Christ for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because he was lifted up. All these blessings in him flow down. Out of his side, friends. Out of his side, brothers and sisters, flowed water and blood. John doesn't want us to miss this point. He doesn't. He writes in verse 35, to drive it home, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John also joins the ranks of all these witnesses so that you may believe. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Not one of his bones was broken, just like Exodus 12 foreshadowed. Jesus fulfilled what the Passover lamb always foreshadowed. He fulfilled it. He is the lamb of God. So what does all this mean for you? If you're a Christian, if you have believed in Christ, if you have gladly submitted to this king, the king of kings, then God's judgment has passed over you. His judgment has passed over you. The wages of sin is death. Our sins deserve God's punishment. But judgment, God's judgment, his just punishment has passed over us because of the blood. Because the Lamb of God died in our place, there's no judgment left for us. All of God's people need to be reminded of that good news once again this morning. God's word for us is not one of condemnation. It's not condemnation, but one of benediction. That is God's word over your life and mine if you are a Christian. So we praise God for the lamb, the lamb of God who was slain. Praise God for the lamb who was slain for me, for you. Have you believed in Christ? Are you a Christian? This is a day for you to search your heart. 
It's a day for you to behold the glory of Christ as it's displayed here in this passage and to believe. If you do not, then God's judgment has not passed over you. No, anyone who is not a Christian, this is what's true of them. God's judgment is over you. It is over you. It hasn't passed over. And when Christ returns, it will be far too late. The book of Revelation says, Behold, Christ is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There are many people gathered in this room. One day, all of us will look upon Christ. Not a dead Christ, but the risen and ascended and reigning Christ. Every eye will see him. And it will be a day of unspeakable grief for you if you are not a Christian. God's judgment is over you. Pilate and the soldiers, Jesus and John, the scriptures, all bear witness. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Believe and have life in his name. Well, this brings us now to the fifth and final scene. We've looked at four so far. Here's the fifth and final scene, the burial. We see in verse 38, or we read in verse 38 of Joseph. From the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn several things about Joseph. He was rich. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Here, what John mentions is that he was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Well, the secret is out now. The secret is out. Before we're too critical of Joseph for being a a secret disciple of Jesus, consider what he just did. Look at this. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of someone who was just crucified under the charge of sedition. He asked for his body. If this isn't courageous and fearless and gutsy, then I don't know what is. Now the Romans and Jews, the Sanhedrin, all of them know that he is a disciple of Jesus. Loud and clear, there's his allegiance. He just played his cards. In a similar way, think of Nicodemus. I think this is the third time that he's mentioned in this gospel came across him in John 3 and later on in John. Well, here he is again. And notice what John points out as he's telling us about Nicodemus. Notice what he says. He says in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. By night. That's a reference back to John 3 when he came to Jesus and it was nighttime. Well, it's no longer nighttime. Passover began at sundown, and they're burying Jesus before the sun goes down. It's daytime. It's daytime. It's not the nighttime. And that might be the very point that John wants us to pick up on. By asking for Jesus' body, Nicodemus may have just stepped out of darkness into spiritual light. Nicodemus, along with Joseph, 
end this passage of Scripture bearing witness to the glory of Christ. So as we close, let me return to Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. You may be able to watch that film and walk away feeling sorry for a good man who suffered so violently, but you can't walk away from John's gospel simply feeling sorry. You just can't. Mel Gibson's movie may lack theological interpretation, but not John's gospel. This passage proclaims the glory of a crucified Christ, and it demands our response. He who saw it, John himself, has borne witness so that you and I might believe. Amen.